You can go ahead and turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 4. privilege um, I know now we see now we see dimly and one day it's going to be face to face but man it's a sweet privilege to get to stand in his presence and sing songs like that to God so excuse me while I get oriented alright let's pray let's pray together God, we need your help. Lord, we love your word. God, we're so thankful for your word. We love your word. God, please help us as we meditate on it together, God. Open our eyes to see beautiful, glorious things that you have done and that you're going to do. Challenge us and convict us, God, where we need it. Encourage us. Build us up, Lord. Lord Jesus, we want to be more like you. And God, I pray that you take the, this glimpse of your church that we're about to read about, Lord, and you would conform us as a church into the image of Christ as we see here. God, help us. We need your help. God, I praise you that you take weak communicators and, and weak hearers of your word, God, and you move in power and you open our eyes and you help us see. God, please do that this morning. Father, thank you for your help. And we lift this, these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Acts chapter 4. We're going to read this together. Verse 32 all the way to chapter 5, verse 11. And I want to convince you that this is meant to be a unit of Scripture. I didn't just, I didn't count verses and say, oh, we'll stop at verse 11 in chapter 5. This is actually a unit of Scripture that we're meant to take together. And I want you to see that as we read this starting in verse 32. Got the church in Jerusalem here. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land while it remained unsold? Did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When, I, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all those, on all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out 
and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And, and she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you've agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all those who heard of these things. I want to take this in three divisions in this passage of Scripture. And I want you to see this. Verse 32 through 35 of chapter 4 is a division. When we get a glimpse into this church, we see a picture of this united uh, church together, sharing all things in common, this united people. It's this glimpse, this snapshot of the church. Number two, you go to verse 36 and 37, and you get insight into a specific individual in that church, a member of that church named Barnabas, and you get a good example of Barnabas. Then in contrast to Barnabas, chapter, four, chapter 5, verse 1 says, but a man named Ananias. So in contrast to that, you get a, a bad example of two members of this church in Ananias and Sapphira. And I want you to see, I want you to be convinced that this is a, a unit that we're to take together. That, that, these, that these, these three sections are connected. If you notice in all three sections about the church and about Barnabas and about Ananias and Sapphira. We, we see that there's this emphasis on them uh, loving one another and giving and sharing of what they have. We see that with the church. We see it with Barnabas. And we see it in a hypocritical way. But we see that with Ananias and Sapphira. There's actually a specific phrase that gets repeated in each one of these sections that should tell you that we should take this as a unit. So in, in the section about the church in verse 35, and laid it at the apostles' feet. That's what they did. The church that were coming together and they were laying these things at the apostles' feet to distribute among all. And then in the section about the individual Barnabas, it repeats the exact same phrase in verse 37. He sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money. And here's the phrase, laid it at the apostles' feet. Then we see the exact same phrase in the section with Ananias and Sapphira. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira in verse 2 says, With his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it. And here's the phrase, and laid it at the apostles' feet. So I want you to see that this is a connected unit that we're taking together. I want you to be convinced of that. I didn't just say, well, verse 32 through 37 is not enough. I'm going to keep going. This is actually a section of scripture that we take together. Now, just initial observation. You're looking at this, this passage of God's word. And what do you see? You see this church is unified together. It's beautiful. It's desirable. Anybody that reads this, that's in Christ says, man, I want to experience that with the church of Jesus Christ. But you also see that, that they, they don't just have it all together, right? That there's actually sin in the midst of the church that has to be dealt with with Ananias and Sapphira. And in a sense, that comforts us. Not, not in a sense that we're comforted by somebody else's sin, but in the sense that we know that when we see sin amongst ourselves, that it's nothing new. That there's been sin going on that has to be that Satan's attacking with sin even since the very beginning of the church. And we see that in Ananias and Sapphira in chapter in chapter 5. So here, here's what I want to do. I want us to zoom out for a minute. Okay. And we're going to take a pretty big lens here. Pretty wide lens. And then we're going to zoom back in. Now you're going to be tempted as we zoom out to think. Man when is he going to get back to his text. Okay. But just go with me. Hear me out. And follow this train of thought. Because I want you to see some things about the temple of God. And specifically the church of Jesus Christ. As the temple of God. Now this passage of Scripture, okay, so Acts 4.32 to, to, to 5.11, this is a passage about the church of Jesus Christ. We're getting a glimpse, a snapshot 
Just like we did in chapter 2, verse 42 through 47, a snapshot of this is what the church looked like. Okay? Now we know that at the end of this section, chapter 5, verse 11, the first time that word church, the Greek word ekklesia, is used in chapter 5, verse 11. First time we had that in the book of Acts. It says the whole church, fear fell upon those in the whole church. So this is talking about the church, and I believe our attention is being drawn to this fact, that the church is the temple of God. Or to say it the way the scripture says it all the way through about the temple of God. The church is the dwelling place of God in the spirit. This is where God's presence is. The church is the temple of God. You say, well, how do you see that? Now, we've talked about the transitions that are happening in the book of Acts, right? That there are major transitions that are happening. So we're going from old covenant to new covenant in the book of Acts. We're going from the old Israel, the people of God with their 12 tribes. And now you have 12 apostles and the true Israel, the the new Israel, the true people of God. We're transitioning in the book of Acts. We're going from the spirit has not yet been given, as Jesus said in John 7, to now the spirit has been poured out as Joel prophesied in Joel chapter 2. So we have transitions that are happening in the book of Acts. You understand that? Well, here's another transition that is happening. We're going from the temple, that building built in Jerusalem, that temple as the dwelling place of God. This is the dwelling place of God. And we're seeing a shift in the book of Acts to the church, the people. The church of Jesus Christ is the dwelling place of God in the spirit. So we're seeing this shift happen. And I believe our passage of scripture is meant to emphasize that. Let me very quickly tell you why I think that. If you take Acts chapter 3 and 4 and 5, you just take Acts 3 through 5, our passage is sitting right in the middle of that. You've got this emphasis all the way through these chapters about the temple of God. Acts 3, they're headed into the temple of God for prayer. Heal a man, he gets saved. The, the temple guard or the captain of the temple, the leaders of the temple arrest those men. They reject them. They reject the Messiah. And we see this exact same story or very similar story on both sides of our passage in Acts 3 through 5. So there's this emphasis on the temple. But the idea is that the temple guards, the temple leaders are rejecting their Messiah. And now guess where the fullness of the Holy Spirit is coming Guess where God is dwelling with his people? And over and over again through Acts 3 through 5, we see that God is filling his people, filling his church with the Holy Spirit. This is the temple. And so here we have our passage. If you did a detailed study, you see all these details about the temple. But it seems like we're shifting from that old temple to here's this church. We read about it in Acts 4.32 through 5.11. This is the temple. This is the dwelling place. The dwelling place of God. And so here, here's, here's, what I, here's what I want you to think about. Let's zoom out just a, just a little bit further, okay? So, so if you go to the temple of God now, okay, we've got our passage, but go temple of God from Genesis to Revelation. Do you understand the significance of the temple of God from Genesis to Revelation? Do you get that? I, I want you to think about this. I think about how much ink is used throughout your Bible Talking about the temple of God. There is so much ink being spilled about this. Why is it so important? Think about it. You take the book of Exodus. The whole last half of Exodus is is the details about how they're going to build this. At this time, it's the tabernacle. It's kind of like the the mogul version of the temple, right? So you got the tabernacle. The whole last half of Exodus is saying build it like this down to the details. Of the curtain should look like this. And the rings on the curtain should be spaced this far apart. And here's where you put the embroidery of the, of the cherubim and the seraphim. And, and this is where the trees go. And this is where the holy of holies is. There's these details about the temple all through Exodus. And then you get to Leviticus. And it's this whole book devoted on how you can get into that temple of God, dwelling place of God, safely. Then you get to Numbers and they're saying, here's how I want the people to organize themselves around the temple of God. So that the Levites surround it so that the wrath of God doesn't go out to all the people. So you're seeing these pictures, this devotion to the temple of God. Uh, you see the tabernacle being talked about all through the wilderness wanderings. All through the, uh, as the people take over the promised land. 
You see the, 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 uh, the details that are given about when, when David says, I want to build a temple for God. I want to go from tabernacle, this mobile unit, to actually a solid, solidified, uh, 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 not temporary, but permanent temple. And he gets the details of preparation, getting ready to build that thing in First and Second Kings. And then we get the details about Solomon building this thing and then dedicating this thing to God. And, and all throughout we see God filling this place with His glory so that people can't even stand and do the work of God in that place. Then it repeats in First and Second Chronicles. And then it's torn down whenever Jerusalem is taken over and Judah is taken captive. And we get the book of Ezra and, what are they, and they come back and what are they doing? Rebuilding the temple. Look at all this ink spilled on this. It's all over the Psalms, all over the prophets, the temple of God. It's all over the New Testament. So the question is why? Why is this so significant all throughout your Bible? Have you seen it that way as something that's just that significant? So why is it so significant? And here's the connection I want you to make. I want you to make this connection. Garden of Eden, tabernacle, temple, Jesus and His church... And that new Jerusalem is coming, and we read about it in Revelation 21 and 22. Garden of Eden, tabernacle, temple, Jesus and His church, and that new Jerusalem that is to come. Now, how are these connected? Listen to me. You re- this is glorious. You read about the details of the tabernacle and the temple, and as you read those details, what you see are glimpses that are supposed to remind you to look back to the Garden of Eden, and they remind you to look forward to that coming new Jerusalem, to that, that, uh, that place where God dwells with man at the very end of all things. And here this temple is meant to remind you of those things. So here's the idea. Garden of Eden. God dwells with man. How glorious, how beautiful that God would dwell with man. Man sins against God. Your sin has separated you from God so that He will not hear your iniquity has hidden his face from you. Adam and Eve are kicked out of the Garden of Eden. So here's his people separated from God, deserving nothing but hell. And they multiplied more and more hell-bound people on this planet. And so how is God going to restore them back into his presence? So he makes a tabernacle. And here's the picture, guys. I'm going to make this tabernacle. It's going to be this picture of when of this restoration into my presence. But guess what? You've got to have a sacrifice to get in here. Someone has to die in your place. And so we're going to have a lamb sacrifice so you can even enter in there. In fact, you need a high priest here. There's going to be a mediator. Do you see the pictures of how God in the tabernacle is teaching us how we are restored into the presence of God? Or the temple. You can enter into the temple, but you got to have a lamb slaughtered in this place for your sins. You see what he's trying to teach us? you got to have a high priest to be a mediator between you and God. You see what he's teaching? And then you get to your New Testament. you got Jesus comes. And he is the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He dies for our sins. He's punished in our place. He rises from the dead, ascends on high. And now he's also our great high priest who mediates between us and God. And then the church is the temple. And then we get to the future in that new Jerusalem where we're going to dwell with God perfectly, singing at the top of our lungs. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive glory and honor and power. And so the church is the temple. Let me get you to read this verse. Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 21 and 22. Listen. He's talking about the church here. If you know this context. Ephesians 2.21 He says, In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Church, a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You see that? Your temple, the church is the temple of God. A dwelling place for God in the Spirit. Now how does this affect the way you think about the church? The reason why I want to spend time here is, is, is I want you to think about this. How, how does this affect the way you think about your church? The way you think about the church of Jesus Christ. You think like this. The church is the temple of God. This is the place where God dwells. 
The church is the temple of God. This is, we are a people of the presence of God. Do you understand what that means? We're a people of the presence of God. We're not just merely like-minded people, but people marked by His presence. That's what the church is put forward as here. We're those who say, God, thank You that You've come to dwell with us, that You've given us Your Holy Spirit. And we're also those who say, God, give us more. Fill us with the fullness of You. Ephesians 3.19 The temple of God, we're a people of the presence of God. We're those like Moses who say, Oh God, show us Your glory. And God, if, you're, if Your presence doesn't go with us, don't bring us up here with the temple of God. A people of His presence. The world looks in and says, God is truly among them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, God is truly among those people. So the church is the temple of God. We meet with Him individually in the secret place. We gather corporately and we meet with God. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. And this spills out into the world as we are a people of the presence of God. And so here's what I want to say just about that point. Grace Community Church, let's live that out and not let anything strip that from us. That we are the people of the presence of God. Let's live that out for the glory of His name. Do you long for His presence? Do you praise Him that you have access to His presence? That you get God, that His Spirit dwells within you and you've got access to say, More Lord Jesus, rend the heavens and come down. We're a people of the presence of God. Let's live that out and not have it stripped from us. Now here, as we begin to move back into our passage, okay? I want you to think about this. What are the, what are the signs or what, what are the expressions when a people are living it out as the people of the presence of God, the dwelling place of God? What are some expressions? What are things that are seen that show that? And I'll give you two things. One is unity and another is holiness. One is unity and another is holiness. So think about that throughout the Old Testament. You got the temple of God where God dwells. You got this place. And what's it marked by? The people travel from all over. They come into this temple to worship God. This united congregation. It's marked by the unity of these people. And it's also marked by holiness. You don't have hardly or lightheartedly come in to the temple of God. God has struck men dead before for doing that. Go read Leviticus chapter 10 of Nadab and Abihu taking the presence of God lightly in the temple of God and God strikes them dead. So, so the holiness, we see holiness and unity expressed as this is what it looks like when the people are living it out as the temple of God. Now I want you to see that in your New Testament. So if you're, if you're already there in Ephesians chapter 2, you just saw in verse 21 and 22 that the church is the temple, the dwelling place of God, right? But what's the context around that? What is the context around that verse? And I, and I submit to you that the context around that is a people united together, a unity amongst, a loving unity amongst this people. Let me just read you a few phrases. Verse 14. He himself, Jesus, is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. A little bit later it says that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace. Verse 16, it might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. We both have access by one spirit into his presence. So here's the idea that, that this temple of God is expressed by unity in the church. All right, let me give you another one on that. First Corinthians chapter three. Here's the holiness side. Holiness. As a people live this out as the dwelling place of God, unity and Here's holiness. Chapter 3, verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. In the Old Testament, like Nadab and Abihu, in the New Testament, like Ananias and Sapphira. For God's temple is holy. And you are that temple. So here's this expressions I want to put before you of the unity of God's people and the holiness of God's people are these expressions of God dwells with them. That's the dwelling place of God in the spirit. And we see that in our passage of scripture. 
So Acts 4.32 to 5.11, this, this glimpse, this, this uh, snapshot of the church as the temple of God. And what do we see? We see in chapter 4 a people united together for the glory of His name. And we see in chapter 5 a people that must walk in holiness. We see an emphasis, a holy God who commands a holy people. So let's dig back to our passage a little bit tighter into these sections. Look at verse, again, Acts chapter 4. Verse 32 through 35. Let's look at that section. A church. A church that's united. So we've got this snapshot of the church, just like in Acts 2. And we see a church that's united. Look at verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Now that's beautiful, right? The full number of those who believed were one heart and soul. The full number. Same phrase used in Acts 6 verse 2 where it says the apostles gathered together the full number of the disciples. And in, in verse, look at verse 33 right here. It says, With great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So we've been talking about that, that the apostles with signs and wonders that were being given by God were testifying that they saw Christ risen from the dead. But what about all the people? Look at all the people. And the grace of God was upon them all. The full number of the people, one heart, one spirit, and, and one soul, and, the great, and great grace was upon them all. What do we see here? There's a pervasive unity running through these people. There's a, the, the, the God is at work in a pervasive way throughout these people. It's not perfect. It doesn't mean there's no sin. We're going to see that when we get to Ananias and Sapphira, right? But the, but the reality is, that the, the, the point here is, look at these people, the, the full number of them, the, great, the great grace of God is upon them all. They're one heart, they're one soul. Look at this. It's beautiful. It's desirable. It's unity. Unity in the people of God. So I love this phrase. One heart and one soul. You know, you, you hear that and you can't think, of, if you're like me, you can't help but think about what in the Old Testament. Jonathan and David. Remember Jonathan and David and this relationship they have? Let me just read you a couple phrases. 1 Samuel 18.1 The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Their souls are knit together. That's the picture I see when I hear Acts 4.32 in the church. That their souls were knit together. And over and over again it says, and, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul, and David loved him as his own soul. And even after Jonathan died, listen to this phrase, Jonathan dies and David says this, I'm distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. And Dustin has never wrote me a letter like that. <laughs> I'll be expecting that soon. <laughs> but the point, do you, do you, do you see do you see what I mean about their souls knit together? This, this is the glimpse we're getting of the temple of God, which is the church. And look at them united together. Their souls are knit to one another. It's beautiful. So, so are you experiencing this? Are you experiencing this sort of friendships, this sort of relationships? You know, after they suffered persecution in Acts 4, they're persecuted and arrested. And then they let them go before this passage. They let them go and it says, and they went back to their friends. And they had these friends, they began to cry out to God together. These people were one heart and one soul. Are you, are you experiencing Are you experiencing some uh, uh, Jonathan and David stuff? Of, Man, my soul is knit together with those people. How, is, how are we as a church? How is Grace Community Church doing at this sort of example, this sort of unity? And, and y'all, you know, you guys know me. My, I like to push and pride and, and uh, challenge. That, that's what I like to do, okay? I want to push us. I want to move us forward. I want to prod us forward. That's what I, I love to do. But just being honest, I'm studying this passage, okay? And the more I'm studying, the more I'm thinking about this church, and the more I'm making application of us, man, my heart was just filled with thanks to God over what God has done in this church, and so I don't, I don't know if this is, you know, this is the same with you, but, but I want to pull you into worshiping God for what He has done. Think about, I'm just thinking about 
These people that are one heart and one soul, and I'm thinking about our church, it's not perfect. We have sin, we mess up, all that kind of stuff is there. But man, think about what God has done. My best friends in the world are in this church. And so many of you could say the same thing. My, my children's best friends are, are, are in this church. I think about the way needs are met here. Man, just needs, just constantly met. People ready to care for each other, ready to love one another. I see that amongst Amongst the people here, and it makes me praise God. And I want you to praise the Lord too. I, I, I sent out uh, some messages to a few folks about just making sure I wasn't you know, hallucinating here uh, about the unity of our church. And, uh, and some of the responses, I was telling them, talk to me about what you think about Acts 4.32 and the unity of this church. And, and give me some examples. And it's interesting how so many people... As it related to unity in the church, they gave examples of things where people left or where, where there was some sort of uh, a division or, or, or church discipline. And, here, and here's why I think that's true. It's because you think about that, like, you know, I see the Bolins back there. When, when the Bolins had to leave a while back, and we know they kind of half left, right? <laughs> uh, but, but when they had to leave and they weren't fully here amongst, like, man, that was painful, like we were, oh man, I love these people. And we're like all, you know, petitioning MC so we can get them back, you know. Uh, <laughs> so, but, but my point is there's a pain there when there's this unity and love. There's a pain there when people have to leave. When we sent out the Peru missionaries. I mean, the whole floor was wet of tears and, 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 and longings for these people that we love and we don't want to see them go. When there's a detachment there, there's pain. Why? Because there's unity there. When there's no unity, you don't care. Even with this church discipline stuff and weeping, the stuff that we've dealt with recently of, of church discipline, weeping over these, these, these cases of church discipline and, and, and just being broken by it, it's signs of unity amongst us. So I, I just want to encourage you, have you worshipped God over what He has done in that? Or have you taken it for granted? And I want to encourage you, please don't take it for granted. You remember the, the nine lepers? Ten lepers were healed by Jesus. One came back and bowed down in worship. And Jesus said, where's the nine? Where's the nine? And I just want to encourage you, don't be like the nine, but worship God for what he's done. All right, so here's what I'm doing. So this unity idea, this unity idea. Now, as, as Acts 4 begins to explain more of what this unity looked like, what is the emphasis that gets put forward? As, you know, here's the unity, but it doesn't leave it vague. It gives you specific examples. Look again at verse 32. Now the full number of those who believe were one heart and one soul. So there's the general unity there. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. Skip down to verse 34. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them... And brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each, to each as any had need. So, so as the unity is further expressed, what do we get here? We get sacrificial love and sacrificial giving, meeting each other's needs. That's the, that's the picture that we get. Now, now, some people miss this, I think, because they got a wrong idea about what's being said here. The idea here is not some sort of weird communal living where every person sold their property. That's not the idea. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, because when you get to Ananias and Sapphira, it's obvious that this was a voluntary thing. Peter's going to look at Ananias and say, when you sold that, was it not your own? What are you doing? You don't have to give it to us. It's yours. He's going to tell him that. Not to mention later on in Acts, like in Acts 12, 12, we see the people gathered together praying where? They're praying in Mary's house. Evil Mary didn't sell her house. You get what I'm saying? These people, it's not this picture of everybody sold, sold the things that they had and they just had this little... Con the idea is this sacrificial giving. And when these came up, they met them. They loved one another. They cared for one another. And there was this constant meeting, meeting needs over and over again. And here's something I want to say. As I meditated on this, th th there's, a, there's an adverse relationship that I began to pick up that's found in other places in the Bible. So here's, here's that the kind of adverse relationship. It's, it's between the love of one another and the love of money. Okay, so what we see here is people love one another, don't love money. Okay? 
Love of one another and the love of money. And here's what I mean by adverse relationship. When the love of money is high, the love of one another is really low. When the love of one another is high, it means that you must be freed up from the love of money. And the love of money is really low. There's, there's an adverse relationship here. Other places in the Bible, Hebrews chapter 10. You don't have to flip there, but Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34. It says that, that these people, they were being commended because they had compassion on these brothers and sisters in prison. And it says this. It says, willingly enduring the plundering of their property. Do you see that relationship? If they love money, if they love their property and their stuff, they would not have moved in compassion and loved these brothers in prison. But because they were free from the love of money, they were freed up to endure the plundering of their property so that they could have compassion on those who were in chains. Well, what about uh, 1 John 3.16? It says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And so we ought to love one another. But then it doesn't leave you in a general love. It gives you something specific. It says, it says, if you have this world's goods and see your brother in need and don't meet it, how does the love of God abide in you? Do you see the same correlation? This adverse correlation that if you love money, you can't love one another. If you love one another, it means you've been set free from the love of money. So I'm meditating on this. I'm thinking, man, that's, that's a neat thing to think about. And then at the same time, I'm reading through a book right now that's walking me through the history of the evil of slavery in America in the 1600s and 1700s. And I'm reading this and I'm amazed at how much people that are walking in this evil, how much they are, they are motivated by the love of money. And, and the, think about it like this. From the 1600s and, and, and you know, pre-official America, but the 1600s in this land into the 1700s, a transition was being made from indentured servitude to lifetime slavery from those who they had, had, had stolen from the coast of Africa. And so a transition was being made. You say, why is that transition being made? The reason is because the crops in that place were booming and making money like crazy. Tobacco crops, rice crops, they're growing. They're making money like crazy, but there's not enough manual labor. Well, we got a denture servitude, right? Which, if it's done in a godly way, can be good. It's mostly white people. And, and for the most part, they were, they were saying things like, Hey, I will be your servant for this amount of time. And if you, you know, take me to America, if you, you, know, if you uh, take care of me in this way. But at the end of that time, they would leave. And guess what would happen when they would leave? They would start their own tobacco farms and things. And guess what happened to the money? The money began to spread. So you know what people want to do? We want to transition from indentured servitude, which can be good, to lifetime slavery of blacks. And they man-steal people from Africa, bring them over. And what was it motivated by? Love of money. The love of money can actually move you to a place to be willing to wickedly oppress a group of people that look different than you. And so, and so I'm just thinking about this, this relationship, and then, I, and then I'm looking here in Acts 4.32, and what do you see? Now the full number of those who believe were of one heart and one soul. There they are. They love each other, one heart and one soul. Well, what do you mean? How do you describe that? And listen to this phrase. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. They're free from the love of money to love one another. Can you imagine that? You have belongings. But nobody in the church was saying, that's mine. They're saying, no, it's yours, Lord. Whatever you want me to do with it. And they were free so that they could pursue the love, the love towards one another. Now, how would you say Grace Community Church is doing in that? How are we doing in this free from the love of money, sharing with one another? How are we doing in that? And, and, and I know, same thing I'll say to you, I, I know that we've got, I know there's, you know, if you're feeling convicted about your love of money, don't let me mess you up. So I know we got problems, I'm, I know that. But man, I was thinking about, it. this just is one phrase. It's in, it's in verse 34. There was not a needy person among them. Just that one phrase. There was not a needy person among them. Why? Because there was no needy people in Jerusalem? No, we, we see why, because they, they cared for one another. And I was thinking about our church, you know, so many people read that and they think, oh, it's just something, man, we just never experienced a church like that anymore. And I'm reading, I'm going, yes, we are. Worship God. Think about what he has done. 
There's not a needy person among us. And when there is, we, we go after it as a church, meeting it. Not just one avenue, but, but, but you know, I think about the, uh, the deacons that God has given. God has blessed us with faithful deacons that help lead this out. But even beyond that, I'm just caring for one another. God has done this. There's not a needy person among you, Grace Community Church. And if there is right now, then we're ready to meet it. We're ready to help them. Do you understand that? And it's not because there's no needy people here. Man, I, I wish you knew all the scenarios. I wish I knew all the scenarios of the way this has been played out in the church. I, I just I want us to worship God. Worship God over that. Don't miss that. Let's go to verse 36 and 37. The good example of Barnabas. I'm going to read it again. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means the son of encouragement. He got a cool nickname. A Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So she's giving an individual example. So we got two examples put before us. Barnabas, and then what's coming up is Ananias and Sapphira. We have a good example and a bad example. Be like Barnabas. Don't be like Ananias and Sapphira within the church. That's, that's, that's the idea here. So we move from a whole church example to an example of an individual member in that church. Now why, do, why, does, why does it do that? Why do we get examples of individual members in the church, not just the church as a whole? And here's something I think we can learn from that. A faithful church is made up of faithful individuals. A faithful church is made up of faithful individuals. So God glorifying unity among the church is not produced by structures and strategies and planning and programming. It's not produced by that. We can't do that. We can't make the, just the right structure and program that's going to make unity in this church. Faithful churches are made up of faithful members of that church like Barnabas. Men that have been touched by God and moved by God to be faithful in these areas. So, so how, how, if the church is looking at Barnabas, if the church at this time is looking in at Barnabas, how would they describe Barnabas and his devotion to the church? How would they describe his devotion to the church? Say things like this. He was his his uh, he had self sacrificial love. Like man, he was just he was enduring pain to himself to love these people. They would say he's look at Barnabas. He's meeting needs all around him. Look at that faithful individual. Just meeting needs when he can. They would say uh, chapter four verse thirty two that that none of the things that he possessed does he count it his own. He just holds it open handedly. It's just. He holds loosely the things of this world. That's what they would say about, about Barnabas, right? All right? What about you? Faithful member of a local church. Would, would they say, would your closest friends around you, the people that know you the best, would they say, man, it's self-sacrificial love. Just meet needs all around him. Meet needs all around her. Man, it's like, it's like they don't even count their possessions their own. Or would the people closest to you count you as tight-fisted? And it's just too consumed with your own things rather than, than loving others. How would the closest people describe you? What about, what about when the church of that time, how would they describe Barnabas as it relates to his, his love of money? His, his, love of, his love of possessions? I think they'd say he don't give a rip about them. Look at him. He didn't give a rip about these things. They'd say he's like Acts 4.32. He just holds these things loosely that nothing is his own. And same thing. What about us? What about you as an individual? I think we're supposed to move from corporate examination to individual examination. What about you? Would you be faithful in this area? As the people that are closest to you and they look in, what do they see about your attachment or freedom from the love of the things of this world, the love of possessions, the love, the love of money. And my encouragement to everybody there is, is be like Barnabas. And I praise God that he has done that with so many of y'all that I love. <laughs> that God's done, done that with so many. But let's be like Barnabas and go deeper in that. All right, let's go to the next example. <clears throat> Ananias and Sapphira. It's the bad example. 
put up against the backdrop of the good example of Barnabas. Now this situation, uh, we're not going to read it again, but if you think about this situation, this is an exaltation of the holiness of God. The holiness of God. And, and the holiness that God calls His church to. It says something about you as a member of the church and your relationship with sin. The story of Ananias and Sapphira teaches you something about the seriousness. The seriousness of sin. So I want you to understand what happened here. Ananias and Sapphira, they saw what happened with Barnabas. They saw Barnabas. Look, look at Barnabas, man. Barnabas got some recognition. I mean, Barnabas even got a nickname. Look at that. I want some recognition. Ananias and Sapphira, I, I want some recognition. I want that nickname. I want that. And so what do they do? Well, they do something similar to Barnabas. They go and sell what they have. And then they bring it to lay it, to do the exact same thing. Lay it at the apostles' feet. But instead of laying it all down, they hold back. And they just lay part of it down. Now, is that the sin? Is that the sin? Now, for the sake of moving quickly here, listen to me. That was not the sin. When Peter rebukes him, he says, he says, Ananias, in verse 4 and 5, Ananias, when you had that land, was it not your own? It's yours. There's no obligation here. Nobody said you had to do that. You didn't have to give any of it. Even when you sold it, Peter says, was it not your own? And so what's the problem here? The problem is they are doing something that looks similar on the outside to what Barnabas is doing, but they're doing it to be seen by men. They're doing it for recognition. They are hypocrites. They're walking in hypocrisy. That's the sin that they're walking in here. So what does God do? God kills them. God kills them both. Please do not soften that. I was so... I was so I came across some good commentaries, but I was so disappointed in, in, in several commentaries that just want to soften this. I'm just saying silly stuff like, well, maybe they died of a stroke. What? No, God killed them. You mean died of a stroke? I marked it out with a commentary. I want my kids reading that stuff when I die. <laughs> but. My, my point is this, don't, don't soften this. We tend to do that, right? We got this idea of what we think God ought to be. And so we read text of Scripture, it doesn't fit it. So we got to change the text to fit what we think about God. And I'm saying, no, don't do that. God killed them. And it's supposed to speak something to you about the holiness of God and about the seriousness of sin. In fact, in this passage of Scripture, listen to me, because you might wonder, well, you know, I walked in hypocrisy and God didn't strike me dead. Maybe you thought something like that. Here's the, here's the point. We're walking through the book of Acts and we're seeing the church develop. And this is the first time we have on record. Satan has, Satan has attacked the church from the outside with persecution. This is the first time that Satan goes on an inside job and the, and the sin is coming from within the church. He's trying to destroy the church from within. And in that first that first sign we have of sin in the local church, in this first church in Jerusalem, what does God do? God makes a statement. He makes a statement about it. You say, how do you know that? Look at, look at verse 5. After Ananias dies, look at verse 5. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and, and breathed his last. So God killed him. And listen. And great fear came upon all who heard it. God's making a statement here. He's putting a fear, a proper fear into the church and a fear about sin. Look at verse 11. This is how it closes. Now she's been killed. And verse 11 says, And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. So listen to me. God is making a statement here that sin is serious, that God is holy. That we should be concerned about sin in our hearts and bringing that sin into the church. We should be concerned about these things. God's making a statement here. Now, praise God, it's not normative, right? We'll probably think, man, everybody be dead in here. Okay? It's, praise God, it's not normative. But look, don't overcook that. God killed more people like this. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, people taking the Lord's Supper in unworthy manner. And because of that, many of you have died. So I want you to see that this is, this, is, this is not a... It's telling you sin is not to be... Sin is not to be toyed with. 
So we want to walk in these truths, right? So, so, so here we are with the church. We got this glimpse of the church, the temple of God. We want to walk in the truth of, of we are a people of the presence of God who have His presence and long for more of it. We want to be a people who walk in this truth of the unity that that produces and love and care for one another, freedom from money and the things of this world to care for each other. We want that. And we want to walk in holiness. We want to walk in righteousness and holiness to, to as, as the Scripture says, be holy as Christ is holy. Be holy as God is holy. Well, if we want that, and I know you do and I do too, then we need to take heed to some warnings that are given to us from chapter 5, verse 1 through 11, Ananias and Sapphira. So let me give you five warnings. For time's sake, I'm going to skim through these in less detail than you could go. First warning, beware of sin in general. Brothers and sisters in Christ, not even just the specific sin we see with Ananias and Sapphira, but just sin in general. Beware, take warning, let this passage that produced fear in the church, let it produce fear in you to beware of sin in general. You say, what do you mean? Well, I, I, we have a tendency to take sin too light. Nobody here has ever overestimated sin. We always tend to minimize it. We always tend to think too lightly about sin. And it makes the cross of Jesus really, really little. So that's a problem. And it makes, it makes you more desensitized to sin in your life and sin in the church. It's serious. God broke out on Ananias and Sapphira. Sorry, I talk with my hands. You know, there's, there's a... There's a uh, when you think about this passage of Scripture, there's a word where it says, Ananias is fire. It says they kept back. The Greek word there, and, and it's translated, they kept back. It's the only time that's used in the New Testament. And it's only used one other time in the rest of the Bible. If you take the, 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 the Greek Old Testament that, that Luke more than likely was using, one other time that word is used, you know where it was used? It's what Achan did. Remember Achan? It said that same where he kept back some of the spoils. From there in Jericho. Oh, it's just a little sin. That's the way we feel like just a little sin. He just took a little bit from the spoils, right? He fought a war for it. He deserves it, right? But God said, don't do it. And just that little bit of a sin, what did it lead to? It, it affected the whole nation. They lost the next battle. His children were stoned. He was stoned to death. And God's making a statement to the people of Israel in Joshua 7 that sin is serious. And God's making a statement to the church. And God's making a statement to us that sin is nothing to play with. It's nothing to toy with. It's serious. And maybe you did it and didn't die. But listen, that's the mercy of God. You better beware that it is so serious, so destructive. It's going to take you further than you think it will. So kill it. Make war on sin in its invisible infant stages. Just kill it even then. That's our posture. That's our posture towards sin. Sin in general. Number two, beware of a specific sin. Beware of hypocrisy specifically. Now that's the sin that they walked in, right? They wanted to, they wanted to be seen by men in the house of Sapphira. That's what they wanted. They had lust for the praise of men. They wanted to look more spiritual. You ever done this? They wanted to look more spiritual than they actually were. They had spiritual pride. Have you ever been guilty of that? Do you know how serious it is? Me too, by the way. I've been guilty of it. But, but we, we must realize how serious it is. And God is screaming to us through Acts 5, 1 through 11. It's serious. It's serious. Hypocrisy. Trying to look a certain way to put on the front that you look more spiritual than you actually are. Doing things to be seen by men. Hypocrisy. Don't do it. Think about how Jesus talks about it in Matthew 23. The most harsh language that Jesus, is, Jesus uses in all of the Gospels is in Matthew 23 when He says, You hypocrites! You whitewashed tombs! You appear, outward, you, you appear righteous outwardly, but inside you're like dead men's bones. It's a very, very serious thing. In fact, right here in our passage, it says in verse 3, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Can you imagine that? In verse 4, he says, you haven't lied to men, but to God. Which, by the way, is a good verse for the Holy Spirit is God. But, but that's not the point. Listen to me. He just said, 
Ananias, you lied to the Holy Spirit. You lied to God. Now here's what he didn't do. God, this is all my money. He didn't do that. The way he lied was by looking at others and saying this is all of it to try to look more spiritual than he is. It's by doing that. He says, you're just lying to God. Do you know how serious that is to take the source of all truth and to lie to him? That's, what, that's how serious hypocrisy is. And how stupid it is. You think you don't know? How foolish to live a life as if, as, if, as if he doesn't see, as if he's not there. And there's a lot of things that are, you know, we're all going to be tempted to walk in hypocrisy. Every one of us. To look more spiritual than we are. To, 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 to do things to be seen by others. Listen to me. That's offensive to God for many reasons, not the least of which is this. You are living as if He is not there. But God is in His temple. God dwells with His people. And we live all of our life when we're worshiping and singing songs to God just a moment ago. We sing in the presence of God. He sees you lifting up your voice and He sees even more than what the man sees. He sees the inside, the inside of your soul. And is it worship that you give to Him or you do it to be seen by others? So beware of hypocrisy specifically. Three, beware of satanic attack. You know, if you think about it, their sin just seems so common, right? Like we've all, we've all done that sort of sin. That just seem, in a sense, it's kind of common sin. And the Scripture says, satanic. That's the seriousness he puts on satanic. 5 verse 3. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? He said, this is a move of Satan. Satan attacks the, the church in this way. Satan tries to destroy the church in this way. It's an attack of Satan. And so how does it work? I want you to take two phrases that are in verse 3 and 4. And just put them right beside each other. Listen to this. This, this teaches you something. Verse 3. Why has Satan filled your heart? At the end of verse 4. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? Well, which one was it? Why has Satan filled your heart? Why have you contrived this deed in your heart? Don't, don't these sound like they're not the same? Listen, this is how it works, okay? You think, I'm just... I'm just contri contriving this little thing. It's just a little thing in my heart. It's, it's just this little thing, you know, I'm trying to look a certain way. It's just, it's just, my, it's just a little sin. I'm just getting a little, just a little taste of the world and nobody knows about it. It's just a little sin. It's just a small thing. And God's Word says, Satan is at work. This is demonic. He walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And he's on you. He's, he's going after you. Don't you know that? Brothers and sisters, run from sin. In its infant stages, kill it. Run away from it. It's satanic. It's, it's serious. It's destructive. Number four, beware of testing God. We'll move quickly here. Verse, verse 9. But Peter said to her, How is it that you've agreed together to test the Spirit of God? You, you tested he says, you're testing the Spirit of God. What does it mean? Parents, what does it mean when your children are testing you? It means they're trying to see how much they can get away with, right? How much can I get, how close can I get to that no-no without getting a spanking? How much can I get away with? Don't do that. Do you know how dangerous that is? That is, that is so dangerous to play that kind of game with God. And the idea is just this. You can just imagine Ananias and Sapphira. You can just imagine, of, okay, how can we do just enough to look fine, everything's fine, do just enough, and yet keep what we want too, just you know, what we want to have, and God not be angry with us. And guess what? It didn't end well for them. And if you live that kind of life, in the Christ, that kind of Christian life, just, just getting by Christian life, what can I do? Just enough religious stuff, you know, just to, just to be fine, and God's not mad with me. If you live that way, it will not end well for you. Jesus' initial call is deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. If a man loses his life, for Christ's sake, he will find it. That doesn't sound like <clears throat> just getting by type life. And the last warning would be beware, number five, beware of the love of money. 
And you think about this. Ananias could not shake his love for money. It even competed with his love for the praise of men. You think about that. He could have taken all the money. He could have still given all the money and then still did it for the praise of men. Right? But his love for money is competing with his love for the praise of men. And so he keeps it. The love of money destroyed him. And yet you think about Barnabas. And he was free from it. Set free. Because there's so many reasons. He knows the resurrected one who he's going to follow in resurrection and have eternal life with him one day. His home is in the future, not this life. He's not going to store it up here. Let me just end with a, as far as the love, the warning about the love for money, let me just end with this verse on that. 1 Timothy 6. Some of the strongest language in the Bible about the love for money to warn us is in 1 Timothy chapter 6. I'm going to start in verse 8. Verse 8 says, But if we have food and clothing, with these we shall be content. Which, by the way, we're going to find out as we keep reading. That's the opposite of love for money. Having food and clothing, we're content. So, are you content or do you tend to have a discontentment wanting more, 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 more? Or are you content with such things as you have? But those, so here's the opposite of that contentment. But those who desire to be rich fall into, listen to these words, a temptation, into a snare, into many senseless, harmful, Ananias and Sapphira know the harm of it. Harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Do you see how serious the love of money is? For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving. So you're not content, but I crave more. I want more. Through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves through with many pains. It's like suicide. It's like stabbing yourself. Piercing yourself through is equivalent to continuing on in the love of money. So let me do this. I want to close just by... Let me give you a closing summary about what I'm about to pray for us as a church, okay? Closing summary about what I'm about to pray for us as a church. Number one, that we would experience more fully. That we'd experience more fully uh, the... What Christ has purchased for us. We're the dwelling place of God in the Spirit. That we would experience His presence more fully. I'm going to pray for that. Because God's opened the door through Christ for us to have it. Number two, I'm going to pray that... Um, and please pray with me in these things. That we would experience even more richly the unity of the Spirit. The unity of the Spirit that He's given us. You, you know, uh, Ephesians 4.3 says, Maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Here's what it doesn't say. It doesn't say... Create the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. God has given it to us in Christ. The reason we have unity is because you have the Spirit of God in you. I've got the Spirit of God in you. You've got a great high priest. He's my high priest too. You have a mission. I have the same mission. God has stacked our unity into the heavens. And what He says in Ephesians 4.3 is maintain it by forbearance and long-suffering and love and forgiveness. Maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Uh, Lydia came home from... Uh, that G3 conference with this with a quote that I like. She said, um, because one of the reasons you would need to maintain unity is what? Because the truth attracts diversity, right? Diversity all over the room, different people, different backgrounds, different personalities, different uh, 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 strengths and weaknesses, different, all kind of differences. That, so th- here's the quote. The truth attracts diversity, but only love keeps it. Only love keeps us. So I'm going to pray for us that we would experience more of that. Number three, that we would be a holy people that hate sin. I mean hate it and rightly understand its destruction. That we would have the same fear that was produced in the church that Ananias and Sapphira, that they had. Let's pray. Pray with me, please. God, I lift these things up to you, Lord. Thank you so much for this church and the way you've brought us together, God, and you've loved us and, and, and you've You've made us a united people, God. Thank You for the mercy. Thank You for the love poured out. God, I ask You, please, that You would make it so obvious that we are Your dwelling place. That the church is Your dwelling place. God, we ask, we praise You, God, for Your presence in our midst, that You have saved us. 
You have filled us with your spirit. And God, we ask for more. As your word says, God, we pray, fill us, Lord, with all the fullness of you. I pray that the world, God, would look in and say, God is truly among these people. And I pray for every individual, God, that you, you would teach us what it is to meet with you, God, and seek your face, seek your presence continually. God, I pray that that would produce such a unity in us. Thank you for the unity that you've given us, the love and the care that you've given us, God. Give us more of it, God. Make it richer. Help us to experience more of the richness of you uniting us together in one heart and one soul. I pray for any soul here that does not have a relationship or any relationships that are like Jonathan and David, souls knit together. God, I pray you grant it to them. God, don't let them continue on in loneliness, God, but I pray that you draw them into the body of Christ and knit their souls with the church. And God, for holiness, Lord, I pray that you would make us afraid with a healthy fear. God, help us to know your holiness. God, help us to live every moment of our lives individually and every moment of our lives corporately together. God, help us to live it in your presence, Lord. You see all things. You know all things, God. And help us to live in the light of your presence. And I pray, God, it would produce such a holiness here. The sin would be hated. The sin would be hated, God. That you would make us warriors to kill sin in the infant stages, Lord. Help us, God, please. Let us be a church that brings you glory in these ways. In Jesus' name, amen.